So this evening we have James Ray. Now, this is a story of success, meltdown, and then resurrection. When you throw events, inspirational events, you do not expect people to die. But in this situation, it did happen. And James was sentenced to prison. And we are going to cover all of that on tonight's True Crime Podcast. So thank you very much for coming on, James. Hey, it's my pleasure, Sean. Thanks for having me. Where are you from originally? Um, originally, it's hard to say. I've, I've kind of been uh, very eclectic in my upbringing. I, I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, but I grew up, I guess my formative years was in Oklahoma. So if you hear a little bit of an accent, that's still hanging on that's that's where that's from and then uh, i was with at&t for a number of years and and part of being upwardly mobile was the requirement to be geographically mobile so they moved me all over the place and lived in a lot of different um, cities and states in the united states and then uh, I'm, i'm in henderson nevada now how did you go then from working a normal job traveling around to getting into personal development? Well, I, you know, I've always been a a, a kind of a quirky, interesting person. And um, I grew up in the household of a Protestant minister in the buckle of the Bible belt. And I have the utmost respect for, for Christian, you know, beliefs as well as every belief. And yet I wasn't getting answers to the questions that I was asking. So I, I started, believe it or not, I started studying Buddhism when I was 18 years old in Tulsa, Oklahoma, down the street from Oral Roberts University in the house of a Protestant minister. And, and that set me on a path of what you, you refer to as personal development, personal performance. And I started voraciously reading and studying everything. I, I was a very insecure and introverted child. And I thought if I could figure out how the universe works, then maybe I could share that with some other people as well. And as I started to transform my life, then then I, you know, eventually moved through AT&T. I had a career there for about 13 years, and I ended up at AT&T School of Business as a C-suite consultant doing, you know, business leadership, communication, team performance, culture change. And then in 92, I jumped off and and started my own company. And I'd been studying all along, even though I was heavily involved in business. And I jumped off and and got started in 92. So I went to watch Tony Robbins in the early 90s, I think it was, with the stockbrokers, including your friend Jeff. And I've met a lot of people in that community. And a lot of them have regular jobs. And they say, one day, I'm going to not work here anymore. I'm going to be full-time where my passion is. What gave you the confidence to do that? Because most of those people, they say that, but they don't ever do it. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think the first thing we have to understand, Sean, is that the word passion is Latin for suffering. So we hear a lot about follow my passion, and what we're really saying is I'm going to follow my suffering, which is a whole other topic. Uh, but that's that's how it's defined, and and you are going to suffer. Um, it's not popular, but you're going to suffer for 
what you choose to accomplish in this world, particularly particularly in the third dimensional reality in which we're indoctrinated, which is about 1% of what really exists in this entire universe. And it's kind of imprisoning. And so to attempt to to break out of that is very, very challenging, if that makes sense to you. I mean, you can change your habits, but to change your conditioning, and that's what you're alluding to, to change your conditioning is almost next to impossible sometimes. Um, What gave me the courage? Well, you know, I, I just really felt from the time I was small that I had something significant to do in the world, and it wasn't just about business there wasn't it's there's nothing wrong with business but again business is part of the game and there's a lot more to this world this universe than the game we've been conditioned to to play in and quite frankly be imprisoned by and i i just decided to to break out and go for it and it was a big leap of faith you know there's there was trepidation and fear but when i left in 92 i never looked back now i i I didn't literally I realized I would wrestle and struggle for the better part of 20 years, two decades after leaving AT&T until things finally started to take. I always felt like and people told me, you know, you're you're way, you know, too ahead of of the curve for what people are willing to listen to. And, you know, maybe, maybe not. But when you're on the bleeding edge of something that's a lot different than being on the leading edge and and i i really wrestled for for two decades before things kind of picked up and as you probably know eventually with coming out in the secret uh, i was catapulted into a world arena as one of the people in the movie as well as contributing to the book and that was a blessing and a curse sean because it niched me into a market that was very elementary and with all respect, and very much for beginners and very misinterpreted, quite frankly. Before we get to the secret then, once you cast yourself adrift and you're on the path, what were the first challenges you had to overcome to stay on the path? Well, I started off as a business consultant. My first company was just straight up business consulting, which I'd done at AT AT&T School of Business. And, you know, the... The first challenges I had to deal with was that there weren't regular paychecks, you know, and every entrepreneur can can relate to that. You know, some, there's feast and then there's salmon, and it kind of ebbs and flows. And one of the things you have to do is have a tremendous amount of faith that that things when, – when you're conditioned in that I get X amount every two weeks or every month, whatever, it, it's kind of frightening to – to say, hey, I still got a mortgage and I still got a car payment and yet nothing's coming in. I have accounts receivable, but some people are slow pay and some people are no pay. And so there's there's all those kinds of things you have to learn to deal with as an entrepreneur. How do you get the balance right then between sufficient monetization to enable you to continue to follow your passion versus selling out, just trying to make money and then losing, you know, what, what your original intentions were? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think what you have to first and foremost realize, and it didn't come overnight for me, is that money 
is not digits in a checkbook and it's not it's not digits in a bank account because if anyone you know i'm sure you've had an experience sean where you you think you have x amount of money in a bank account and and there was a time where you know i was told i could retire and be comfortable for life i had over 20 million dollars in net worth now we're way ahead of the story here but but I had to come to terms with the fact that money is an idea and it's not, it's not pieces of paper. It's not dashes or digits or bitcoins because it's all just an idea. And I think we're all aware that the currency we have in today's world is fiat currency. It's absolutely valueless. And, you know, we recently got a $1,200 check in the States and everybody's like, yay, you know, because we went through COVID craziness. Oh, I got $1,200. Well, you know, <laughs> where did that come from? I mean, here's what happens. Trump goes, let's give everybody $1,200 and they go to the federal reserve, which is independent of the government and pretty much runs the world. And, and the federal reserve gives them a promissory note plus interest and so then, you know, they take that to the banks and the banks go, OK, um, let's let's write another promissory note, cut a check uh, and send it out to the people. Well, where's the money? There's no money. It's all it's all made up. And so, oh, by the way, plus interest. So, you know, I've, I've got I had this. My, my wife gave this to me because it's a tradition in Persian New Year's to to give a dollar. But this this represents debt. It's not worth a dollar. It's worth debt, more than that in debt. And so we get this $1,200 check and everyone goes, yay, I got my $1,200 check. Well, you know, who's going to pay for that? And when's it ever going to get paid back? The fact is it's not. Because, and so, you know, I'm kind of on a tangent here, but, but I started learning this when I started studying how this third dimensional reality works. And it really is just a game that, that most people never see through. I got $1,200. No, you got a bunch of debt that you are responsible to pay back. And guess what? It's never going to be paid back. <laughs> okay, then. So people work for years and years. Nobody sees that because they've not made their name yet. And then all of a sudden, they break onto the scene and people get envious and they say how lucky that person was. They don't see all the effort put into it. So how big was that? leap for you when the secret came about it, it was huge because you know for the better part of two decades sean i was living on vision sandwiches and faith cookies quite frankly <laughs> i mean I was, I was playing what i call entrepreneurial solitaire where you throw the credit cards on the bed and trying to figure out which one has a balance left on it so you can make it through the month and and you know in 2005 i was you know i i was almost ready to give up and to quit about twice a week, every single week. And thank God I didn't. Um, I went to and spent uh, two weeks on the Sinai Peninsula with the Bedouins and followed the path of the children of Israel as they left Egypt just just weeks before. And I was I was ready to throw in the towel. And I was just saying, man, this is just it's I'm not making any headway. Well, I came back, and in 2005, I was invited to be in The Secret, and that was a labor of love. A lot of people don't realize none of us were paid a nickel to to be in that. Um, not directly. Of course, in the residuals, it changed. But when that thing blew up, 
I, you know, my business blew up too, and in a good way, and yet it was also challenging because I didn't have my servers crash, and I didn't have the, the, the team to handle the phone calls, and my phone system was way too small, and, and I mean, it was, it was nuts. I was on Oprah, you know, a couple times, Larry King a couple times on the Today shows almost every single month for many months running, and... You know, I was indoct- indoctrinated into the, or inducted, I should say, into the Inc. 500 in, in 2009 with one of the fastest growing, most successful privately held businesses in the United States, if maybe the world, I don't know. And so I was living the American dream, man. I, I just built my, or didn't build, but I purchased my dream home in Beverly Hills on Mulholland Drive, a 7,500-foot estate, square-foot estate. And... You know, I I was like, man, all these years, all these decades of of struggle and sacrifice and and suffering with to reference what we already talk about have finally come to fruition. You know, it's 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 the payoff. And now my message is going, you know, worldwide. And as I said, that was it was a blessing, but it was also a curse because I got niched into this this magical um, rose-colored market, if you will, and it was so misinterpreted. Most of my best material, in my opinion, they interviewed me for three hours for The Secret, and most of my best material ended up on the cutting room floor because the producer had a vision, and so there were so many people going, oh, all I have to do is visualize, and it's going to come into my life. Well, guess what? You know, if you sit around and visualize all day, they'll come take your furniture away. And <laughs> and then it's really hard to visualize, Sean, because you got nowhere to set and nowhere to no roof over your head. So so again, I'm really grateful for that experience. And it, it blew into these mega proportions that I couldn't have ever imagined. I even judged the Miss America as a celebrity judge in in two thousand and nine and or eight i think it was and so you know it was the american dream i it was i was on the road over 250 days a year i was in huge demand and it, it appeared like it was the payoff if you will uh, what, but there's another part of the story as you know what was the oprah experience like it was amazing you know it's interesting because um i got offered uh to be on her show every single month. We had a contract. My then manager, William Morris, of all people, picked me up and was managing my, my media career. And um, I got an offer. To- your volume, your sound is gone. Still gone. Can you hear me now? Yeah, back. It's back, yes. Oh, yeah. Lovely technology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I got an offer to be on her show once a month. I got to sit in a in a boardroom with her, you know, literally like right here, and her lawyer was right here, you know, flanking me. And they they and my manager at the time was on the other side, and they wanted me on her show once a month. And <laughs> interestingly, I turned her down, which nobody does, because she wanted to own i mean the the contract was was really really prohibitive i couldn't you know do anything without her permission quite quite frankly and she would own me from soup to nuts and there was no promises that i would be continuing to be on her show and as much as i wanted to work with her at the time 
you know, it wasn't meant to be. And I, and I turned it down and, and, and she wasn't real happy about that. You know, I don't think many people turned down the, the queen of television at the time. Um, so, but it was, it was a, a great experience. My mom was a big fan and I flew her in and she got to be on the show and, and meet Oprah. And so again, I, I really felt like I was living the American dream. Yeah. There's a lot of conspiracy theories about Oprah being in the Illuminati. Did there any indications that you picked up on shape shifting, et cetera? Um, no, I don't know that I, you know, here's, here's, I, I, I would, I would tend to, believe that what you just said is true um and there's many 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 others now as far as the shape-shifting and all that i don't i was i i'm sorry to say i got sucked in you know i mean i got sucked into the game big time and and as much as i'd studied you know all the spiritual traditions and as much as i'd i'd worked with i've you know i've had some really great mentors i studied with a shaman in the andes for several years i've been to the amazon to work with the ayahuascaro and i've i've done all these fringe kind of things for a business person i guess and yet when things went nuts for me you know i i i got sucked in and i i i I see that very clearly now. And so I don't know that I was awake enough and aware enough at the time. I was so focused on, on the business and the boom and, and, you know, all those things, which really amount to nothing, quite frankly. And I'll, I'll tell you how I learned that. I learned that through a lot of pain and that's still part of the story, obviously. So the focus was on a fraction of your work in the secret. With hindsight, does the law of attraction work? Does it work in combination with other factors? Does it not work at all? What are your thoughts? Well, it, it works in the third dimension. And what we have to understand is that the third dimensional reality is just, is just 1% of all that exists. We know in science, I'm a, big, I'm a big fan of quantum physics. I've studied it for at least two decades, and I'm not a physicist, but what we know is that everything is, is vibratory, and it's all wave patterns, and it goes from about two cycles per second, this, you know, this water bottle, very slow vibration, all the way up to 10 billion billion cycles per second, which is as far as we can, we can measure with our instrumentation. And that's not the limit, it's infinite, but that's as far as we can measure. And so in the third dimension, which is just 1% of, of all of existence, it works because the law of cause and effect operates in the third dimension. Now stick with me here because cause and effect says I do this, I get this. I do this, I get this. And everything happens in a linear fashion. But what Einstein told us and many other great thinkers is that time does not exist. Einstein quote, time does not exist as we know it. Time, time, past, present, and future all coexist simultaneously right now. And so in physics, we have a new concept called vertical time. It's not linear, it's vertical. Instead of, you know, there, there was yesterday, today, and tomorrow, there's now, 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 now. Now, if you follow that, then if you're operating in the third dimension, the law of attraction says do this, get this. However, 
outside the third dimension and in what I call the real world or the bigger span, if you will, of spirit, cause and effect does not exist. There's just cause. And everything exists, you know, things that are separated by vast epochs of time, apparently, happen simultaneously. There's no time and space. And so all that to say, if, you're, if, you're, if your viewer is following, is that, yes, in the third dimension, law of attraction works. But what really we need to understand is what I call the law of expansion. Because in quantum superposition, every single thing already is. And that's, that's straight up thermodynamics as well as quantum physics as well as biology. It's already here. And so you don't have to do this to get this. It's already here. What you have to do is expand big enough to embrace it. So I prefer now to talk about the law of expansion. Expansion of what? Expansion of awareness, not just consciousness, because everything is conscious according to, to physics as well, you know. Um, Max Planck, the father of quantum physics, says mind is the matrix of all matter. It's the matrix. It's the foundation. So everything is conscious from, from a rock to a plant to, to a, a possum to a person to a planet. It's all conscious, but what's different is a degree of awareness. And, and if you, as you have greater awareness then you expand and you're able to embrace what already is. I, I hope you could follow that. I know it's a little, a little heady for some. Yeah, absolutely. So as you expand into success, which just takes off like a rocket, after all those years of being in a certain mental plane, how did you psychologically adjust to that? Um, well, in retrospect, not very well. Um, I, because I didn't really expand this way, although if you would have asked me then, I would have said, absolutely, I am, because I was, I was unconscious and, and in denial. And all of us are unconscious at some level. You know, I was expanding this way instead of instead of this way and this way is is our spiritual heritage and our true infinite potential and and so you know i got i got sucked in and i'd read all the books and and i'd i'd study with a lot of great teachers and yet it's very seductive and and you can't you can't get there by reading books you, you just can't you have to get there experientially I mean, books are great, and I see you have a lot of books behind you, and I've got a massive library over here, and I, I'm a big advocate of, of, of books, and yet a book is not going to do it for you, and neither is a video on YouTube. I mean, you've you got to experientially step into it, and that's what happened for me is that, is that I, I went to this grand and success, which let's put that in quotes because you, you mentioned the word success. Well, what, what really is success? Because I deal with people all the time, Sean, who are making multiple six, seven figures a year, and they're not happy. And they're asking me, and they're not fulfilled. And, and they go, what's my purpose? And why am I here? And I've done all this. What's next? Because I'm at the top of the ladder, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking around, and it's, maybe it's against the wrong wall. And it probably is because we've all been conditioned to climb the same ladder and go up the same wall. But when you get there, I, like I did, 
you realize, you know, okay, I've got a 20 plus million portfolio net worth. I've got a 7,500 square foot estate in Beverly Hills. But wait a second, my, my mortgage is 25 grand a month. Please, you know, please. I mean, what was I thinking? I wasn't thinking, you know, and I've got, I've got all these properties, seven, eight property, investment properties around the world. And I've got all this overhead and yeah, my business is making 10 million a year, but it took me 6 million to break even. So I had to generate $6 million to make a dollar. My first dollar I made after I generated 6 million to pay all, all and pretty soon, my my condo in Kona on the beach, which I loved, I felt like it was my spiritual home. I hadn't been there in two years, you know, because I was so busy running on the treadmill and I had so much responsibility and so much overhead. And I I didn't know how to stop, Sean. I really didn't because I had so much, so many people counting on me, 35 people with families who were on payroll and and it, it's not all it's cracked up to be. You know, I look at it now and social media is full of this. Look at my watch. Look at my car. Oh, my God, I got a plane. And I, and I look at that and I go, God bless you. You know, I feel for you because I know what it costs to keep that plane up. Tires cost more than a lot of people make in a year and you got to pay the pilot even when you're on the ground and you got to you got to feed the pilot you got to put the pilot in a hotel and 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 on and on and on and so everyone wants a plane you know well maybe you do but i don't know i i i don't i don't and it came it had to come for me through personal experience and most people unfortunately won't listen to vicarious experience but hopefully some of your listen, listeners will and listen to vicarious experience and and what we've got to do is define what success really means and and I think it's not accoutrements it's certainly not outside of you it's inside of you so let's go from the external to the internal then you've described a lot of material changes when I had my success um, around the time of the dot-com bubble, my ego was as big as the Grand Canyon. So how were your inner dynamics and ego-furring during your success? Um, they were they were like a wild boar on steroids, quite frankly. I, you know, and I didn't know it. I was totally unconscious of it. My intention, my heart was always good. My methodology, not always the best. And, and I think that's a fine distinction that we can make with everyone we deal with because compassion and understanding doesn't equal agreement. And so if we can understand where someone's coming from, it doesn't mean we have to agree with them. We can understand, you know, how, how the 1% can get sucked in to this game and be manipulative and controlled to continue the game. We can understand it. It doesn't mean we agree with it but we understand it and I understand it because I saw how I got sucked in. And so I, I, you know, it was interesting because I was standing in front of these crowds, minimum 500, 2000 people everywhere I went and people were sent up in the audience. And you remember what, around 2008, the, the real estate market was crashing and the banks were crashing and, and, you know, don't even get me started on that one. That was another fiasco. But um, nonetheless, people would stand up on mic and go, oh, my God, James, they're foreclosing on my home. What do I do? Well, here's the guy 
worth 20 plus million, making 10 million a year, living in Beverly Hills. And again, my heart was good. And I really thought this was true. But my my response would be, look, the bank doesn't want your home. They have enough homes. What they want is is a commitment and a plan. So you get totally committed and you put together a plan and you call them up and you tell them what your plan is and you tell them you're committed to it and they're going to work with you. I really believe that. And I was so full of it. Now I know because when my life got hit by a tsunami, I spent literal, literal days on the phone with Bank of America uh, attempting to save my home and God I'm so glad I didn't, but at the time, man, you know, everything was falling down, crashing down, and I, I was just, I was an emotional wreck, and they, they didn't care. You know, I remember bankers who were licking my boots just months earlier after the tsunami hit me and everything went sideways. You know, I call them up, and I'm like, hey, I've got a short sale for you on my office space. And it was pretty good given the, the state of real estate. And they're like, no, it's not enough. I'm like, look, if you don't take it, I don't have the money, you know, to to pay for it. I'm, I'm, I'm busted. And the same banker who had been licking my boots previously and telling me how much he loved me said this, and I quote, <laughs> he said, well, then I guess you won't have anything to lose when we come after you, will you? And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> seriously. And and so I really, through my own personal pain, Sean, started to peel away. Life started to peel away. A lot of the BS that had built up around me and the self-aggrandizement because, again, my heart was good. But I really believed, okay, you know, God has blessed me, spirit, universal intelligence, call it what you will. Because I've paid the price and I've gone at it for so long that I finally became deserving. And now I'm here to serve. And now I've got the answers. Um, and, you know, when you have over a million people from 145 countries around the world coming to your events and asking you how to improve their life, it's really easy to start developing a lot of hubris. And, and what I didn't realize is I didn't have the answers for anything. You know, I thought I did, uh, but life was about to, to, to say, okay, bam, you know, answer this, bucko. You know, see, see how you can deal with this one. Let's get to the dark side now then. Why did you incorporate the sweat lodge? Well, as I told you, I studied a lot of traditions, including shamanic traditions and Native American traditions. And, you know, in retrospect – I won't ever do another sweat lodge. Not that I, I don't believe there's value in experiential learning. There is. But the the cost is just too high from, from where I said, and someone else can do that if they choose to. And I used to do everything. I did fire walks. I did rebar bends and arrow breaks on the throat and, and board breaks and brick breaks and walking on broken glass. I mean, I did all those things. And the reason why, to your question, is because it was an opportunity for us to take all this intellectual um, information we've been through and emotional experience we've been through and transfer it into the body and then face something that scared the crap out of us and overcome it and then tell ourselves, hey, 
if I did that, I can do this. And then hopefully be able to go back home and transfer that from the head to the heart, to the body, to the feet. And, and so I believe there's a lot of power in experiential learning. And that's what the sweat lodge was. It was, it was a graduation exercise that every single year previously had been a big high because people would be frightened and it's difficult and they all knew it was going to be difficult and they were fully informed and, and yet they made it through and they would come out and they'd be like, wow, you know, I did this. I really did it. I didn't think I could. So take us through the event then where it went wrong. What was different well, we don't really know, and, and unfortunately, we will never know because, and, and I, I just want to, I want to preface all this because sometimes people have a tendency, particularly the, the trolls and haters, to misinterpret that I'm trying to sidestep responsibility, and I will never do that. You know, I just put out my new book, The Business of Redemption, and the first chapter, the first, the first statement in the first chapter is, I am responsible. And I am fully responsible. It was my event. It was my team. It was my choice to do what we know now is a dangerous exercise. And as the leader, I'm responsible. You know, when something goes sideways in your business, there's only one person in the crosshairs. So that being said, to answer your question more specifically, it's unfortunate because the state of Arizona and the detective in charge um, didn't do, they jumped to assumptions. They didn't follow up on any of the forensics. Zero. I mean, they took they took samples from the tarps. They took samples from the wood and from the stones. And frankly, you know, we had two witnesses on in my behalf. One of them was a doctor from Harvard. It was a four month trial. And all that was the state. And two days was was my defense with two witnesses. So it was kind of a quite an ordeal. And the, one of our witnesses was the state's own forensics expert, and she testified under oath that the detective never followed up with her uh, on, on the materials that were sent to forensics. And she also testified that there were traces of organophosphates found in the materials, which is congruent with what the doctor from Harvard found is that the presenting problems, foaming at the mouth, dilated pupils, are not heat related. That was the state's whole position is that I made it too hot, even though no one was in there and there was no thermometer. They were saying that, that the heat soared to over 250 degrees. Well, where's that come from? There was no thermometer in there and there was no one there to measure it, but that was their case. And yet foaming at the mouth and dilated pupils are not, are not heat related um, um, difficulties. And so what the doctor from Harvard went through 4,000 pages of medical evidence and said under oath that he believed it was organophosphates, i.e. pesticides. And if, if you Google pesticides, you'll find out very quickly that even a small amount in the human system is toxic and lethal. And, and, so, and they also burnt pressed wood, which was all the place where we rented the 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 sweat lodge from and and my team didn't do any of that stuff we just facilitated the lodge and again i just want to reiterate i'm I, i'm fully responsible and I'm, I'm not trying to shun that i'm just wanting to answer your question and the big answer given all that 
is that unfortunately, because the diligence was not done, they told me within 15 minutes of arriving and taping off the crime scene that they were investigating it as a homicide. So that was, I was in the crosshairs from moment one, and that's kind of the road they went down. So who died and what was the cause of death? Um, well, again, the cause of death is, is really unknown because um, we, you know, again, organophosphates were found and two people, three, three people died. And let me tell you something, Sean, this was never covered in the media. The media crucified me, literally. And I understand. I don't agree. I understand. That's their job because we don't have journalists. We have sensationalists. And, and if it's sensational, it sells. And boy, this was a layup for that. And, and so, you know, unfortunately, what you'll never hear, but this is really important, is that I had spent five days with 52 people, which was a very small group for me at the time, up close and personal. And, and we were diving deep into our own psyche, our unresolved emotional issues, our childhood traumas, all those kinds of things, and doing our best to understand them, heal them, integrate them, and set ourselves free from those things. And so, you know, I, I we worked long, we worked hard, we cried together, we hugged, we laughed together. It was, it was challenging, a challenging five-day week. And so those people moved quickly from the category of client to friend. Because I, frankly, I knew as much, if not more, about them than some of their nearest and dearest friends and loved ones. And so it broke my heart, man. I mean, if you've, uh, if you've ever lost someone you love and care about, you know how that feels. And... That's something I will, excuse me, I will carry for the rest of my life. Um, and that was the antithesis of anything I'd ever lived my life for. You know, I was, I lived my entire life to, to help empower and, and, and support people. And so for them to lose their lives, three of them, it, it was crushing. It still is, you know, um, and, and I, I don't know that that'll ever go I, I know it will not go away because it's just it's a heavy burden to bear and yet it's it's what i'm going to do and continue to do well i appreciate your honesty and were were you when the deaths occurred and how did you find out i i well i was in in the lodge the entire time and and that's one thing, you know, I was initially, the state of Arizona charged me with manslaughter, which is kind of a stretch. <laughs> and, I'm, I, you know, I'll be, I'll be conservative and say kind of a stretch because it was a big stretch because anyone who's in business uh, realizes that he or she's not going to harm their clients intentionally and continue doing business. Manslaughter is intentional harm. It's like going into a, a grocery store and shooting someone in the head. And yet that also included a lesser uh, charge of negligence. And so they charged me with manslaughter, which gave them a broader span to charge me with something. And because manslaughter was a stretch, I mean, the jury said, no, we can't find any evidence 
of intentional harm. Um, but we can say there was negligence. And I, again, I, I accept that because negligence says some things were overlooked and God, I wish they hadn't have been. Some things could have been done better. My God, I wish they would have been, you know, and, and in retrospect, you know, there's so many things I would have done differently, but I, and one of those is I, in retrospect, I probably should not have been in the lodge. It was the only experiential activity that I conducted, whether it's a fire walk or glass walk, all those things we mentioned earlier, where I was fully participating versus just facilitating. It wasn't that, you know, sometimes I would do it as, as a demo to show people that I would do it and could do it, but I was not participating. Whereas in the sweat lodge, I was in there for 12 rounds, full on conducting the lodge. And in retrospect, you know, if I'd have been outside the lodge, which I had people positioned outside the lodge, I might've noticed some things were going sideways, but I was in the experience myself wrestling with my own demons, if you will. And some things were missed. And so I didn't find out anything was going on until after it was over. And I came out and I was sitting in a chair getting a drink of water and getting hosed down with all the other participants. And someone came around and said, Hey, there's two people down in the back of the lodge. And I'm like, seriously, Oh my God. And that's where all hell broke loose, if you will. Yeah, so I used to throw parties in Arizona, um, and I had my own security team and stuff, and a lot of drugs were consumed, and every now and then, you know, someone would go down, and you'd have to go over and figure figure out how serious it looked and what, you you know, the response was going to be. Um, when people started to go down, what was the initial uh, reaction, um, you know, an assessment, and what options were available? Well, first of all, we'd done this many, many years prior. So I know it, I knew it was tough. I knew given the, the character and the constitution of certain people, certain people have more difficulty with physical challenges than others. And I, I told everyone, take care of yourself and, and listen to your, your heart and follow your own intuition. And yet we had still had people stationed outside. We had a registered nurse stationed outside. We had four team members in each of the four corners of the lodge stationed inside. And their job was to check on people that were in their proximity. We had several other team members outside with lemon water and, and fruits like, like watermelon, rehydrating kind of fruits. and and we had a person that my company paid for to be trained in CPR just, just in case. We'd never needed that, but just in case. And so then we had a hose to hose people down, which, which drops your body temperature pretty quickly when it's ice cold water. And so I, I really believed we were pretty covered, you know, with an RN and, and someone trained in CPR. And, and we did have a an MD in the lodge. Now she wasn't on the team, but she was in the lodge as a participant. And so I, I thought we were in pretty good shape. And 
and there were throughout the 12 rounds there were people who were struggling and many people the record shows many people left and some people and they were free to leave you know anytime they wanted and and some people left and stayed out and that was cool uh, one person opted to not even participate and that was good that was all right if you choose not to do it some people left and came back in after they cooled down and all of their own volition. So there was this constant ebb and flow and there was constant activity in the lodge. And so for me, it kind of was, was normal. Yeah, there were people struggling, but it, you know, I struggled. It, it was tough. It, it gets tough after a while. And, and so that's a lot of things were missed. And even the MD stated under oath that, that, you know, based on her Hippocratic oath, if she had known something was going sideways, she would would have to do something, and she didn't. She didn't either. So um, it was it was quite shocking after the fact. So did it all happen so fast? They all went down around the same time. Well, two of them did. Two of them after the the lodge was completed. That's when they said there's two people down, and they got pulled out of the lodge on the back side and then I came around and uh, Dr. Jeannie who was the MD was there and I was I was stunned I mean because when I looked at them first of all I really cared about these people and they looked they looked very pale and their lips were blue and I was like oh my god you know what's going on and I said to the doctor I said what can we do and she said, well, we can see if we can find a defibrillator. And so I ran off to the property to see if we could find a defibrillator, which again, in retrospect, if I, if I had had any inkling of an idea that something like this would happen, which I didn't, and I, I probably should have in retrospect, then I would have had a, re a defibrillator there, but we didn't. So I went to find one and the property didn't have one. So then I come back and they're still pale with blue lips and I'm, and I'm, I'm frantic, you know, and I say to the doctor, are they gone? And she goes, be, she said, be calm, be calm. She said, I've seen this before. And as soon as the, the, the emergency folks get here, they can be resuscitated. Well, I wanted to hear that. Obviously I wanted to hear that. And unfortunately they never were. And that was James and Kirby. And then the other individual who had been one of my clients for at least a decade, if not longer, was Liz. And she wasn't completely down. She was just kind of incoherent and they couldn't, you know, my team couldn't get her to kind of become coherent. And so she actually died several days later in the emergency room in the hospital. But, but the, the two that were down in the back, were, were gone, unfortunately. Did you go into shock? Yeah, big time. What symptoms of that did you show? Um, denial, you know, uh, suppression. I, I remember what typically was the occurrence or the, the, the syntax, the strategy of the event, is we come out of the lodge, Everyone would celebrate because they did it, and then they'd go clean up, and we'd meet 
in what was called the Crystal Hall on the property and kind of debrief it and have our closing you know, event and everybody would talk about it and, and what it meant for them and how it felt for them. And, and it was always a high. And so I remember saying to my, my director of operations at the time, um, what are we going to do? And she said to me, or he said to me rather, it was my director of technology. Uh, his, his wife was the director of operations. They were, they were a couple, but he said to me, you need to go to your room and get cleaned up because we have to close this event up and a lot of these people are in shock and we're going to have to help them. Well, I know in retrospect now he was in denial too, you know, young guy, and he didn't really understand the magnitude of what was going on. And so I said, okay, makes sense to me. And so I go back to my room and I start to shower up to get ready to come back and close the event. And, and the, the EMTs were all there. Everything, I never left the scene until everything was under control. Uh, but at that point, they were doing what they do. And I'm not trained in those things, neither is my team. And they seem to have it under control. So now my thought is, okay, how do I help these people who are in shock to, to work through this and, and come back and calm back down? Well, obviously, I was in shock and in denial and suppression as well. When I was in the shower, I heard a large, a loud knock on my door, and I'm in the shower, and I, I yelled out. I said, hey, I'm in the shower. Give me a minute, and he said, well, this is Officer so-and-so. I need you now, and I'm like, okay, so I get out of the shower, and I wrap a towel around me, and I go to the front door, and part of the whole, again, we had everything kind of organized, the kitchen uh, was preparing dinner for all the participants, but I needed to have my dinner before I went to meet them. And so the, what always happened is the kitchen would make my dinner first and come to my room and leave it sitting on my table in my room. So there's a tray on my table in my room. And the story that got spun was we found James Ray eating a sandwich in his room and you know the raving a-hole doesn't even care well that that's the furthest thing from the truth it's just it's just not even close to the truth and so i went to the door and and of course the officer saw the dinner which hadn't been touched and he said i need i need you to come down here and speak to the detective and i said okay well can i can i dry off first and and he said no i need you right now so you know, I threw on a pair of shorts and some flip-flops and went down there, again, fully expecting that, you know, in my own denial and my own arrogance, hey, I'm James Arthur Ray. Everyone knows what I'm about, and it's going to be okay, you know, and I was still also believing what Dr. Jeannie had told me that it was all going to be okay. You know, it was kind of rocky, rocky, but everything was going to be okay and it's going to be rough. And I needed to support the rest of my clients and get through this after I talked to the detective. Well, that's, that's the last thing that happened. It didn't happen that way at all. From going, thinking everything's going to be okay. What burst that bubble? Um, 
the very first sentence out of the detective's mouth. When I went down there, and I hadn't been gone more than 20 minutes, maybe, uh, they already had the crime scene tape around the entire location. And I'm like, what's, you know, what's this about? I mean, that was shocking. And then the detective said to me, are you James Arthur Ray? I said, I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, we need to speak to you and I need you to know that we're investigating this as a homicide. Literally that quickly. And that hit me like ice water in the face. I was like, it, it didn't compute. Homicide, you know, are you, are you kidding me? And so I immediately got on the cell phone with my lawyer and I said, and it was late at night, and fortunately, I had her personal cell phone, and, and she wasn't a criminal lawyer. Who needed a criminal lawyer? I, I never had a criminal lawyer. She was, you know, she handled our contracts and such, but I said, look, I'm in, Hillary, I'm in trouble. I said, this is what they've told me, and she said, she said, well, I have a friend I went to college with named Steve who's a criminal lawyer. She said, just don't say anything until until I get you in touch with him and he'll know what to do. So, I mean, that started the whole ball rolling and the game was, was going in a completely different direction than what I could have ever imagined. So the rest of the participants in the event then, were they just sent home? They were debriefed in, in the restaurant area, the eatery, if you will. And, some of them were interviewed and you know many of them um many if not and probably most of them were very supportive at the time and that changed over time too as as the harbinger started to roll um but i didn't get to see any of that because you know again the media said James Arthur Ray fled the scene. That was Anderson Cooper's big line uh, on, on, you know, CNN. And <clears throat> that's not the case because I was, I was in the back of a patrol car until 2 a.m. in the morning. They put me in a patrol car and said, you need to stay here. And that's where I was. So I didn't get to see any of them. Well, they weren't told that either. So for my clients, you know, James Arthur Ray is nowhere to be seen. And, you know, what's going on with this? He's not here to talk to us. He's not here to support us. He just disappeared. They didn't know that I was in the back of the patrol car. So, I mean, I can understand, again, how that could be interpreted in ways which it was interpreted by many. And by the time I got out of the patrol car, because I was, man, I was, distraught first of all my friends were down and I didn't know what their state was and I didn't know what was going on with them and no one was telling me secondly I'm now being investigated for a homicide and and thirdly now I'm in a patrol car and told I can't leave and my you know Steve the criminal lawyer at the time who I eventually replaced, but in on that night, he called me back and gave me direct instructions. He said, look, they might take you to jail tonight. Well, that was a shock. I'm like, 
jail. I've never been in jail. You know, are you serious? And he goes, if, if they do, we'll get you out really quickly. Well, that was not comforting. You know, <laughs> oh, you'll get me out quickly. I don't want to go to jail. Why am I going to jail? And, and so he said, just don't answer anything else and leave as soon as you can, because I need you to meet me in my office tomorrow morning in LA. And, and so, yeah, it, it was horrific. It was horrific. And again, I, um, I talk about all this in my new book and, and which was cathartic for me to be able to kind of go through all of that, even though it was difficult. Was there an official arrest? Not that night. No, they yet later on, uh, I, I, I followed instructions and, you know, I took a lot of heat for that too, but here's the thing. And I talk about this in my book is that I was also told at the same time when I was told to leave, I, I told, I talked to my lawyer and we had this long discussion. I said, Hey, I want to go to the hospital and check up on my friends, my clients. I want to check in on them, see how they're doing. He goes, no, you're not going to go to the hospital. He said, because it's calling with press and they're going to be sticking microphones in your face. And the last thing the families want to see is you. And he was right. And he said, and by the way, anything you say is going to be used against you in a court of law. And he said, and here was the kicker for me, Sean, and this also implicates your team. I'm like, whoa. So if I make a mistake, my team, my management team, executive team could suffer too because they were a part of it as well. And so I had to make a really tough decision. And that's, that's part of leadership. You know, leadership, you ha as a leader, you have to make decisions with limited information. You can't, you can't say, well, I need to get some more information. You take what you have and you make a decision right or wrong and, and then pray that there's a forgiving God sometimes because you know you don't have all the information. But for me at that time, I was in such a uncomfortable and unfamiliar place. I'd never been in any kind of legal challenges or problems in my entire life. And so my position was follow the orders of the people who know what they're doing, who, who do this all the time. And that's what I did. And, and so there was no arrest. They, they let me go out of the patrol car because they said there was not enough evidence to arrest me or to charge me that night. And so I, you know, when I got out at two in the morning, everyone was already dispersed or asleep and my leadership team was still up, and I contacted my executive assistant at the time following direction and said, hey, you got to get me out of here and get me on, a, on the plane as soon as possible back to L.A. So did it end in a plea bargain or trial? It was a trial, four months, four-month trial. And the media um, were hot for that. Oh, they were all over it. It was, um, you know, it was all shown on – you know, crime news network and, and all of that. And, and yeah, they were all over it. And, and it was miserable because they, they were charging me with manslaughter and they wanted 30 years. So I had to sit there for four months as they paraded, you know, uh, person after person to testify about what a jerk I was 
and and the trial became all about do you know and and, and you got to you got to get into the mindset with all due respect of an individual in Prescott Arizona who probably makes around $30,000 a year maybe 50 top in and and they're all in their mid to late 50s and the the DA who prosecuted the case herself um, was constantly saying, do you know he charged these people $10,000 to attend this event? Oh my God, well, that's a third of what I make in a year. Do you know he lives in a 7,500 square foot estate in Beverly Hills? Do you know that his business makes $10 million a year? Well, what does that have to do with the two hours in a sweat lodge. It doesn't have anything to do with the two hours in a sweat lodge. Um, but it was this grand assassination and, and turning into, you know, James Arthur Ray is all about the money and he doesn't care about people. And we should, we should throw the book at him. And that's what they want to do. You know, thank God uh, after, and like I said, it was a four month trial. That's crazy. 32 counts of prosecutorial misconduct and that that's that's on the record sean and and one case of prosecutorial misconduct is grounds for a mistrial my case had 32 counts no mistrial they had a brady violation which which is where there was evidence in my favor given to them and they suppressed it and so they were they they got a Brady violation and were fined by the state for suppressing evidence. They, I mean, there were so many things that were just twisted about this. And for four months, better part of four months. And as I said, we had two witnesses. They had, I, I can't even count how many witnesses, two witnesses that the MD from Harvard university and the state's own forensics expert. So my whole part of that, my defense in out of four months was two days. And the rest of it was this parade of just misery for me because I, I saw people who just months earlier had told me I helped change their lives and they loved me, you know, sit up under oath and, and just, you know, crucify me. And, and I'm like, I'm sitting there going, man, this is not, this is not a game. It's not a movie. This is my life. This is for real, you know? Um, so if you can imagine sitting there for a better part of four months with 30 years, you know, swinging like a pendulum in front of your eyes, at this point in my life, that would have been close to a life sentence and, and it's game over. Yeah, it's bizarre, the courtroom, especially in Arizona. I had an ecstasy trafficking case, and I never got to speak. I just went court every month. It didn't go to trial, ended in a plea bargain. Prosecutor portrayed me to be the Antichrist. My lawyer, you know, portrayed me to be this child protege, stock market whiz kid. Neither were true. You know, I was somewhere in, in the middle, but I was never allowed to speak. And by creating an emotional reaction with the jurors in your case, creating envy, this is how prosecutors make their careers. It is so corrupt. Now, facing 30 years, though, what did that do to you psychologically for four months with that hanging over you? It, um, 
it really messed with me psychologically. I mean, I, when, when Anderson Cooper, you know, and, and Stephanopoulos and all these people who once had been my fans, you know, I mean, I was in big demand. They flipped just like that. Well, they never were my fans. They were, you know, I know now that they were just doing as they were told, but, but, um, it all started back when, you know, I'll remember for the rest of my days, um, Anderson Cooper, James Arthur Ray has fled the scene. He's dangerous. I want you to see what he looks like because he's at large. And they're flashing this picture of me in and out of the screen. Okay, wait a second. What do you think? I'm walking the streets of L.A. with a sweat lodge in my back pocket? I mean, and I'm going to whip it out and stuff you in? I mean, seriously? What is this about? They turned me into a cult leader. You know, it was a layup for a cult. 52 people in the desert. In, in this secluded place in the desert of Arizona. Well, guess what? We had an MD there. We had two cosmetic dentists there. We had, we had very six, seven-figure entrepreneurs there. We had very successful, by worldly measure, people there. It, this was no that's, – that's an offense to those people to call it a cult because it was the furthest thing from a cult. But, man, it started – I lost my confidence. You know, I, I started – to say when I kept hearing it just pounding, pounding, pounding. And finally, I was wise enough to turn it off because there were days I was in the fetal position. I mean, literally, I was just like, you know, I happen to believe in reincarnation. I was like, God, just recycle me because I can't take this anymore. You know, well, fortunately, God didn't listen because I could take it. And, and now I'm here. But, but man, it was, it really messed with my head. And to the point that I started asking myself well am i really a monster am i really just after the money and maybe you know all these people are saying this stuff and maybe i'm just living in denial and i don't know who i really am i mean it 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 really really messed with me and and it that was one level which was big but then to see how the whole justice system if you will, operates, it's a search for the truth. You know, I remember the, D the DA, we're here to search for truth. They're not here to search for truth. This is driven by political power, get me reelected, and economic gain, period. And so, so that was shattering for me, Sean, because I grew up in America thinking I had all these rights and all this, this liberty and freedom, and I realized it's not true. I mean, they, they came to my offices in Carlsbad, California, they being the state of Arizona, and, in the dead of night and literally kicked down the doors and came in and tore servers out of the wall, turned desks upside down, stole computers, left papers strewn everywhere, looking for what? You know, a grand sweat lodge conspiracy? I mean, what do you, what do you, why are you decimating my office? What are you doing? And I said to my lawyer, can they do this? And he's like, yeah, yeah, they can. But if the time comes that you get indicted, then your rights really kick in. Well, he was as, <laughs> as inebriated on the system. And with all due respect, you know, great, great person, great man, good heart. And he really believed in the system as much as, as I had been conditioned to believe.
it tore away everything. It, I was shattered, literally shattered. Did you speak at your own trial? No, I, you know, that was a great debate because my, my P, my then PR person really thought I should. And my lawyers really thought I shouldn't because, um, they, you know, I'm a professional communicator and I, you know, I was willing to do it, but the, the end result was, no, don't speak because they're going to try to, to hook you. They're going to try to get you to stumble. They're going to try to do this and that and the other. And, of course, I was not in the greatest state um, given the, the gravity of the situation. So I kind of just came to the conclusion in my own mind, and I went through so much during the entire trial, the entire process. But I said, you know what? The only thing that really needs no defense is the truth. And if you defend yourself, then that means maybe you're insecure in the truth. And that's kind of what I ended up grounding myself in. And fortunately, you know, I feel like I feel blessed because I got two years, which was, which was not any picnic, uh, but they won a 30. So I could still be there today and not talking to you right now. I've been I've been back for seven years now. So when that sentence was handed down, did you have an overwhelming sense of relief? No, I had an overwhelming sense of shock because I really still believed that in America <laughs> that the truth wins out because the doctor from Harvard said, look, this is not heat. This is pesticides. And the state's whole case was heat. And in fact, it was interesting because when one of the networks was, there, there were network cameras in the, in the courtroom the entire time. And one of the talking heads, when they heard that, said, reasonable doubt, case is over. You know, well, no, it wasn't over. And my lawyers felt very convicted that it was it they they were like fighting for righteousness and truth, and they really thought that we were going to win. And they kept telling me, "Hang in there, hang in there." Uh, except for my lawyer in Prescott, Arizona, my local lawyer, he he pretty much knew, but I didn't want to hear from him. You know, he he was a rancher and a and a cowboy, and and he pretty much knew how it was going to go down. But I didn't want to believe that because my L.A. lawyers were saying, hey, this this can't go down. This sets my my case made case law, Sean. There there have been deaths in lodges previously that have never, ever been prosecuted as a crime. Never. You know, and there's a whole host of reasons on that, too, around diversity and all kinds of stuff, which we won't get into here. Uh, But. There, it was unprecedented, and so they, the LA lawyers, were really saying, "Hey, this this isn't going to happen." And so when it, when they first came out, they, you know how they hand the envelope, and the judge opens it up and reads it, and he said, "Manslaughter, not guilty." And I was like, "Oh man, I, I was so relieved." And my lawyer reached over and squeezed my leg, and said, "Hang on," you know. And then there was negligence, uh, guilty, three counts. And I, I was just like, I mean, it's all on film. I it was just like, oh my God, I, I can't believe this. What does this mean? So from that moment, 
having no previous offenses and being already in my 50s, my lawyer started telling me, hey, you're going to get probation because you've never, you know, everyone gets probation and, and, and on the first offense and you've never had any problems previously. So now I started hanging on to that. And of course, that slipped through my fingers as well. Yeah, truth is completely irrelevant in the court. It is just theater. And it's the side that's got the most resources that can put on the best theater show. And that's always the state. Like you said, you had two witnesses. They brought in endless witnesses. And they twisted people's minds to say whatever they wanted them to say. Now, which prison were you sent to? Um, several. The, the very first prison that I went to was called The Walls. And that's where they housed Death Row. And I was literally, I was in cell block seven, right next to death row. So the first month that I was there, I was in solitary confinement. So this is an and, Arizona, Arizona state case, was it? Arizona state prison system. Yes. Yeah. And so I was in solitary confinement for the first month. And that, you know, that was horrific because they'd never cleaned the cell. And I had basically four walls, no window, a little concrete slab in the corner with a one-inch urine-stained mattress on it, a sink and a toilet that were so crusted with calcium that the water could barely run. And yet, on the flip side of that, it was comforting because, you know, I was in such a foreign environment. I didn't know when I went into prison if I was going to get raped or stabbed or if I was ever going to or ever get out alive. The only thing I knew about prison was what I'd seen on HBO or television, and that wasn't pretty. So I was really scared. And as horrific as, as solitary confinement was, I was used to being with me and my own thoughts. And it also made me feel safe because I was separated by concrete walls and a steel door from all the other inmates. So when you finally did interact with the inmates, how did they treat you? You know, a great communicator, but someone who's been in headline news as a target, perhaps, because you've got money. Life is cheap in the Arizona prison system. I mean, they'll kill you for $50 worth of heroin. Yeah, um, it, it was quite dramatic because, you know, I ended up going into... Uh, protective custody instead of the general population and and that was a whole fiasco too because I'm standing in line with all these other inmates being admitted and this guard comes up to me and pulls me out of line and takes me into an office where there are four other guards a woman and three men and they said to me is there anything you want to tell us well, I don't know what the heck they're even talking about. You know, I mean, my lawyer really, you know, with all due respect to him, Prescott lawyer, he should have schooled me a little bit. I don't know. What do you mean? What I, is there anything I want to tell you? Well, is there anything you want to, you want to tell us about? And I'm like, I don't want to be here. You know, I mean, what, what, <laughs> you know, I mean, I had, well, what they were fishing for, they finally said, well, you have to ask us, we can't offer it to you. And I'm like, okay, uh, can I leave now? You know, I mean, really, I was totally oblivious what they were doing and they're not able to 
to suggest someone goes into protective custody. You have to you have to say, hey, look, given my circumstances and who I am, I should probably go into protective custody. That's the rules, and that's what they were fishing for. And finally, with all this cloak and dagger, I finally figured figured it out, and they gave me enough hints. And so then there's this big debate. Well, I think it'll be all right in GP, and people are like, no, no, you know, they'll they'll extort him, and they'll think he has money, and and he'll get into trouble. And no, you just keep your nose clean. So this whole debate going on about my life, and I'm scared stiff, man. You know, I'm hearing people are going to extort me, and people are going to maybe, you know, stab me, and and all this stuff, which is just adding fuel to the fire. And so finally. I went to protective custody and, you know, it took me a while to get there. I was, I was transferred through a lot of different facilities and I, um, when I got on the yard, it was a sea of orange and I thought, oh my God, you know, I'm going to go out there. And it was very frightening for me and everyone knew who I was. They knew who I was when I was coming into the hole at the walls. Um, the guys on the yard in cages were yelling, you know, hey, Sweat Lodge Guru, you know, and, and all kinds of, you know, you better not you better not get caught with me outside of your, your, your cell. And, I mean, all kinds of stuff that just, again, was very unsettling. So now I'm going into this sea of orange, and I'm thinking, man, I'm going to have to go out there. And they all knew who I was too, and so they start running up, and I, I am the the brunt of jokes. Oh, you know, can you help me, you know, develop my life, and can I have an autograph, and and all, you know, everyone's making fun of this, and I'm like, my God, you know, I I got to be here for two years, and what's this? What's it going to be like? And at the end of the day, Sean, I really felt like the state and the system hated me and now i would come to a place where with a bunch of other guys who had probably been mistreated in many ways too and they would understand me so we would get along well not so not not at all because i got two years some of them got 20 for possession of marijuana you know or something and so i became the rich guy with with the great lawyers who got off the hook with two years and they got 20. So many, if not most despised me uh, for that. It it was not, it was not a comfortable place to be. Were you in a cell or a dorm? Um, At first I was in a cell and we were required to be there three times a day for count. And then towards the end, I got transferred to another facility into a dorm with 35 other men and that was miserable i mean it was in the middle of of the arizona desert 130 degrees outside and there was no air conditioner you know you want to talk about heat you know there's no air conditioner and they were carrying guys out on stretchers every single day from heat exposure there were there were swamp coolers which just make it worse and i and so you know, I was in a bunk right next to the biggest heroin dealer on the yard, and there it was like a revolving line coming to his bunk every single day to pick up their fix, and guys were laid out. I mean, I was surrounded by heroin addicts, and, and the, the guards knew it. 
You know, okay, so you get busted for drugs, and now there's as much, if not more, drugs in here as there were out of here. And I'd never been exposed to those things. Not, you know, that I'd never grown up around that or, or been around that. So it was quite an education in, in darkness, if you will. Yeah, I had a cellmate who was addicted to heroin, and I asked him, you know, out of all the people in this building, how many guys are shooting up? And he looked at every single cell, and he ran the math, and he said 90% approximately. When I was telling people that 90% of the prisoners, but mostly in love for drug-related offenses, are injecting heroin all day long, people were like, no, that can't be right. And then I said over half of them had hepatitis C as well, yellow jaundice skin, teeth rotting out from sharing dirty needles. It's just absolutely right. Tattoo, tattoos with dirty needles. Yeah, yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. In fact, it's funny because when I finally, it's not funny, it's sad. When I got out uh, and I had um, uh, three months of, of um, probation, uh, um, or is it parole? It's parole, right, uh, on the back end where I had to stay in Arizona. And I went to my parole officer and he said, well, we're not going to make you take um, – UAs, urinary analysis, because you're not taking drugs, right? And I said, I said, no, I don't have a drug problem, but let me tell you who does have a drug problem. He said, who? And I said, your system. And he goes, yeah, we know. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, you know. And it was just that 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 haphazard, you know, it was just that brush off. Yeah, we know. Um, and they did know. I mean, the guards, the guards knew, and 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 no one really cared. They just didn't care. The guards, it's always some of the guards bringing the drugs in. Yeah. So earlier you said you were in a cell. How were your initial um, interactions with your cellmates? Um, not good. You know, my they put me, the first cellmate was a, a former police officer, and I thought, oh, man, this is great, you know, because he's a former police officer, and so uh, we'll get along, and, and he'll be – upstanding well he ended up stealing from me the the only person well there was one other but besides one other person who ever stole from me my entire two years in and he was just he was just not he was very very dark and not a good and angry and not a good guy to to be with and then uh, from there i had many cellmates who were members of the Aryan Brotherhood, um, angry guys, you know, really angry guys. I had, I had guys who did, you know, tattoos to make a little extra on the side. And, and I had, you know, gang members. I, I really ran the whole gamut throughout my, the entire experience. And, and it was, um, it was interesting. And again, Sean, here, here's one of the big distinctions I made when I was in prison, because when I first went in, I was still kind of arrogant and ignorant. And I see this and I, I saw that I learned that through experience. And what I mean by that is I thought there's all these guys and then there's me. And they all belong here and I don't. Well, I, I realized in retrospect that was my own arrogance because that's part of what the system is attempting to drive in today's world this divisiveness and and 
you're black and I'm white and you're Jewish and I'm Christian and, and you know, you're from India and I'm from America. All this divisiveness is what the system wants, quite frankly, because it disconnects us from humanity. And what I, what I learned in prison was that, and I had, I talk about very specific situations in, in my new book, but um, I had very, very um, empowering interactions with, with one man. One man was the leader of the yard. He, he, you know, he had a big red swastika tattooed across his entire dome and he was scary. And yet I sit down and had a conversation with him once and I realized, you know what? He and I are the same guy. He's chosen chosen different behaviors, but he has the very same fears and uncertainties and insecurities that I have. You know, I came in here in fear, uncertainty, and insecurity. He was getting ready to get out, and he came to talk to me because he'd been in for 20 years, and he was he had the same internal feelings and emotions that I had. It was just the exterior and the behaviors that were different, and I really began to realize man, we are all on the ship of humanity. And right now, when I was in prison, I was in the boiler room. And in the boiler room on the ship of humanity, we tattoo ourselves and we shovel coal and we, we talk about our gang affiliations and we do everything to try and we curse and we fight and we do everything to try to be important. But all the way up in the penthouse of the same ship of humanity, you know, we, we tattoo ourselves with our fancy jewelry and our big watches and our, our big houses and big cars. And look how much money I have. And we have, you know, we have an affair with our best friend's wife. And we're constantly looking to squash someone else to show our importance. It's the very same game. It's just, it's just a different methodology. And it's the very same things that we're trying to do to escape our own pain. And unfortunately, none of them work. None of them work. I don't care if you're in the penthouse or the boiler room. And that was a real distinction for me that, hey, you know, my, my, one of my great teachers was Don Jose Luis. He was a, 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 shaman, a shaman out of Peru, the Toltec tradition. And he said to me once, he called me Santiago. And he said, Santiago, you can play the game, just don't buy in. And I think that's about as profound as it gets. As long as we're in this third dimensional reality in a physical body, we can play the game, but we don't buy in that that's all we are and that we're this physical body. That's the least of who we are. And, and when we get past, you know, um, you're from the UK and I'm, I'm not, and, and all of this BS, you put any one of us in a good fire, we all end up the same. Right. I mean, I mean, it's all just surface. That's not who we are. And that that was something I really came to learn in, in, in prison. Did anyone attack you or did you see any violence? Yeah, I saw I saw violence. I I saw some some violence even in and I'm sure it would have been much more in in general population I heard the stories all the time because it was like bragging rights that people had um, but I did see violence where I was and I had I had one guy it's interesting because um, there was a gentleman who was enormous I mean, he, his, his handle, and almost everyone has a handle in prison. You probably know this. And 
his handle was Skull Crusher, and he was called that because he was what what was known as the torpedo. When the guy who runs the yard does things don't go his way, then they send the torpedo to go have a quote conversation with someone. And you don't want to have a conversation with Skull Crusher. You just don't because he's he's about six foot five and probably two fifty, two sixty. And one day he approached me and I was like, Oh my God, what did I do? Because it's so easy to have infractions in this culture because there's an unwritten culture that no one no one describes to you or explains to you and you usually figure it out through infraction right and then you get pummeled because you've broken a rule that you didn't even know existed and so i thought oh my god what did i do and this was early on and he ended up you know again here's here was another lesson i prejudged him based on his appearance and based on his his history and the legacy that went around the yard about him because he said hey could we take a walk well of course i didn't want to but i'm like okay we started walking around the yard and he he started asking me questions like hey what do you think happens when you die and and you know i'm going to be getting out of here soon and i made a mess of my life and i really need to turn my life around and i and i was like wow and we ended up walking for several nights having these deep conversations, which taught me a lot as well. And so now fast forward, there was a big Samoan guy once who really, really did not like me for a variety of reasons, mostly because I was a New York Times bestselling author and I had been so wealthy and well-known and, and he, he wanted to be this big shot in the prison and so he he really hated me for that and he started leaning on me big big guy started leaning on me pretty hard and getting up in my face and then it just went away and i thought wow it nothing ever came but it it felt like it was going to and it went away and then i found out later through the network that uh, Skull Crusher had gone and had a conversation with him. And and I never asked him to do that, you know, and he never told me he did it, but I was told by others that he did. And so ended up, you know, this guy that I had judged based on his story and his appearance became my greatest ally, you know, in that sense. Wow. You, yeah. said, you said that you did see some violence. Are you able to describe what you saw? Um. Well, I, I saw I saw a lot of fight. There was fighting nonstop. I mean, you put the average age in in prison um, was 35 years of age. So you put, you know, guys who had been raised in a culture of violence full of a lot of testosterone and nowhere to go with it. You know, there was a lot of fighting and, and a lot of. I mean, really ugly, bloody fighting and grappling and all those kinds of things. And then I, I saw um, someone chasing another one inmate, chasing another inmate around the yard with a table leg that had a long nail in it and was taking swipes at him. And fortunately, the guards took took them both down. Then there was a really interesting time where this guy who was a gang, former gang member, and he and I kind of connected for whatever reason. He gave me a book on Buddhism once, which I, I started studying Buddhism, as I told you, when I was 18. 
and he gave me a book on Buddhism, which was kind of surprising. And he and I just, he liked to really jab at me, but in a good way, you know, we kind of jabbed at each other. And I saw him, you know, storming down the hall one day, furious. And I said, hey, man, where are you going? And he said, this, you know, this son of a bitch on the yard just disrespected me in front of everyone. And I'm going to show him, you know, who who's a little bitch. That's what he called him on the yard. It's a little bitch. And he was fired up. And I said, and he was smart. A lot of these guys were really smart. If they'd used their intelligence in a productive way, they, they could have really done something different with their lives, but they didn't. And I said, can you sit down just for a second? And he goes, no, I got to do this. I come, I, come on, man, just sit down for a minute. And he did. And I said, look, I know who that guy is. I said, do you care what he thinks? He's like, hell no, I don't give a shit about what he thinks. And I said, really? And I just paused. <laughs> And I said, why are you so fired up then? And and he goes, well, what do you what do you want? You want me just to let him disrespect me in front of all the other guys in the yard? And I said, I said, look, you know, are you a little bitch? And he's like, f you, Ray. No. And I said, okay, then why is it bothering you? And I I really talked him down and talked him through it. And I said, I said, look, if I called you a a chair would you get upset you know you're just nothing but an old chair he, he laughs at me he's like you know like what what the hell and i said i said why are you not upset and he goes i'm not a chair i said exactly i said the only things that tend to upset us are the things that we think are true and he that hit him and i said look this guy's getting out in two weeks if you go shank him, he had a, he had a shank in, his, in the back. He showed it to me in the back of his pants. And I said, if you go shank him, they called it ventilating another guy. I said, what's going to happen to you? And he said, he said, oh, I'll probably get, you know, at least another two years and I'll go over to constant lockdown. And I said, so this guy's getting out in two weeks. You're never going to see him again. And you're going to do that to your life for a guy that you don't even care about by your own admission. And I, I, because he was smart, I was able to help talk him down because it was going to go bad. It was really going to go bad. And, and so, you know, that, again, I saw a lot of blood and a lot of fighting. I didn't see any stabbing as close as I saw was, was the guy being chased with his, you know, uh, table leg with a nail in it. But I got, I got threatened you know, several times early on, which was, which was frightening by, by the Native Americans. And again, I, I, I understand, you know, sweat lodge is a big part of their tradition, although it's a part of a lot of traditions, but they, they were really upset and saying I was trying to impersonate a Native American, which I wasn't, you know, and, and so they were, you know, they were really upset initially and I got threatened um, from, from them. And, and it's really interesting because PC, which is another way we get divided in today's world, it, it doesn't exist in prison. And you probably know this, you know, the, the Hispanics are called the Paisas and, and they're cool with that. And the Native Americans are called the chiefs. You know, if you, if you use that out here, that'd be, you know, 
oh man, you're really disrespecting me. But in there, it's it's not a big deal. And and so anyway, long answer to your question, but yeah, there was some violence. Fortunately, you know, uh, I found out two weeks after I left that one of the female guards got raped on the yard and and you know unfortunate situation i knew who she was and and fortunately i i didn't have to observe that what about the food how was the chow <laughs> there's no food i mean it, you know i i don't think god makes meat in a tube i i i don't know what kind of meat comes in a tube but that's not meat and and so you know the food was horrific it really was and as you're probably aware, they have a calorie count that they have to they have to meet. And so the easiest way to meet the calorie count is through starchy carbs. So it's the first time in my life, hopefully the last, that I ever had a serving of pancakes with a side of bread. I mean, you know, come on, really? But that's how they meet their calorie count. And the meat that you get, you know, I I, I didn't get any any fruit except for one, one piece of fruit the entire time I was in there, and that was stolen out of the, the guard's office. And a guy came and brought, brought an orange and goes, hey, man, you want to buy this? And, of course, in prison, you don't have money, but the way you, you exchange things is, is like if you have a pack of cigarettes, which are in high demand, or you have chew, chewing tobacco, dip, that's in high demand, and what also is in high demand are sweets, like honey buns and such. So I learned very quickly over time, even though I don't use any of those things, to buy a lot of them through the commissary because then I could get things that I wanted. So the guy sold me this stolen orange for a honey bun, and and so one piece of fruit, um, I, I had – Every every broccoli I had while I was there had no floret. It was just a broccoli stem, so I, I don't know what where the heck that came from either. But but I had one cellmate once who was really really sick, and I don't know what he had, but it you know it was horrific medical conditions and horrifically dirty there, and as you said, hep C and, and staph and AIDS and, and all these things were rampant. And m my cellmate had, you know, big sores all over his mouth and, and, and his nose was constantly running. Literally, he let it run down his face and he, he didn't smell well. In fact, his shoes stank so bad that after he fell asleep at night, I'd, I'd literally get up and put him outside in the hallway because literally they were horrible. It just reeked. And my point is, is that his job was working in the kitchen. So I'm like, <laughs> wow, you know, this is the guy that's preparing our food. And so it was, it was really bad. I lost 40 pounds that I, I didn't need to lose. When I came out of prison, I was 40 pounds lighter and in horrible physical condition. I had periodontal disease, and I was just really physically a wreck. How were the strip searches and shakedowns? Um, demeaning. Demeaning. I mean, particularly in, in, um, in solitary confinement, I mean, you, lo you lose all sense of pride when you have to get cavity searched and all those kind of things. It, it got a little better as time went on because the guards 
knew who I was and I was, I was, I never got in trouble. You know, I, I, I made a decision early on that I was going to use that two years and I was going to read and journal and contemplate and, and plan and, and make myself a better human being. And I, I came to the conclusion after I got over all the anger and the poor me, which I did go through, hey, where else in your life do you have a pause in midlife where you have no mortgage and no utilities and no food bills and, and no responsibility and you can just work on you? And most guys would watch 16 hours a day of TV. I didn't ever watch TV. I I read books and I journaled and I I meditated and I worked out without weights because they don't allow weights in prison. Um, but the point is that over time, because I was really a good, on good behavior always, the guards started to know me. And so they would come in because they had to, to do strips and, and searches. And they'd kind of go through the motions and go, you're, you're good. You know, but that took a while. That was probably more into the second year. After you got over the woe is me, did you feel a sense of liberation from the world of mortgages? Yeah. Yeah, I did. And, and um, you know, I, I think if you, can, if you can find heaven in the midst of hell, then heaven is truly found. Because it's really easy to convince yourself you're in heaven when you're making millions and, and you're living in this posh environment and neighborhood, even though there's hell there too. Like I said, a $25,000 a month mortgage, which was just nuts. I mean, I look back at that now and I'm like, what, you know, really? I mean, I, my wife and I now, um, we have no desire to go there again, you know, and just no need. And I'm grateful that I've had that experience, but we live in a modest little place here in Henderson, Nevada, and it's clean and it's comfortable. And, and that's, I mean, we're grateful to have that. And that we really don't need, you know, a, an AMG Mercedes and, and all the kinds of things that I got sucked into. Um, but there was a sense of relief because, you know, going through the loss of it all was very painful because, in many ways, I had become object identified, as so many people do. I mean, if you ask most people, who are you, they can't answer the question without saying something about what they do or who they have. Well, you're not what you do, and you're not, you know, what you have. So who are you? Well, most people can't answer that because we become externally identified and it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility because the system has programmed that into us since the time we started the dysfunctional school system and earlier, you know, by our parents and not because our parents were bad, but our parents were trained by people who trained them. And they were trained by people who trained them and by who trained them and trained them. And very few of us ever stop and really say, hey, what's this all about and what's important to me? You know, what do I really value in life? And, and that was one of the great gifts of, of being in prison is I had a lot of time to ask those questions and answer those questions and dig deep into my own psyche to find the answers. So what is the meaning of life to you now? I think the meaning of life is to live. 
and, and, and to really live, you know, not to exist and, and to realize, you know, for me, this is a game and it's a really, you know, exciting game. We live in turbulent times right now. I mean, it's very apparent, you know, we just came through COVID craziness and, and, you know, I've been censored on Facebook and Instagram more times than I can count because I'm not, I'm not talking the mass mentality about those things, nor have I ever. And yet it's a great, it's craziness and, and all the riots and all the divisions and all the separations, it's craziness. And yet what I also know is that every single breakthrough is preceded by a breakdown. And that certainly happened in my life. The things have to break down for a new emergent to be birthed. And, and I, I really believe, Sean, and time will tell, that this whole COVID craziness and as difficult as it's been for everyone, me too, you know, I mean, the, the last thing people invest in when things go crazy is personal development. So, you know, business is like dried up like it has for so many in the last several months because it should be just the opposite, by the way, but it's not. You know, it's the times of challenge that we should be saying, hey, I need to work on me. You know, I'm not going to watch Netflix 12 hours a day because I can't leave the house. I'm going to work on me. You know, how many of us ever, ever thought – I need a new job. I don't like what I'm doing. I need a new direction. I've got, and, and yet, life has just gifted it to you. What have you done with it? Well, most people have done a piss poor job, quite frankly, because of fear. And and so the big lesson too, through COVID craziness, there's so many, is that for all this division that apparently exists. Here's what the reality is. In two weeks' time, two weeks' time, every single one of us on the planet went into voluntary lockdown. It, there was no militia. It wasn't mandated. We went into voluntary lockdown. Why? One reason, fear. And so what that tells us, if we're really astute, is that we're all the same person, and we're all so full of fear and so insecure and so disconnected from who we are. And so I don't care, you know, every, every country, every single country except for maybe Sweden. Sweden is kind of rebellious, you know, and, and God bless them. You know, they didn't go into lockdown, you know, God bless them. But everywhere else, it doesn't matter what your label is or what your religion is or any of that. We're, we're all pretty much in the same soup. And if COVID craziness taught us anything, it should have taught us that. Now, did everyone get the lesson? I don't think so. But more and more and more people are getting it. And, and you know, I've never seen such a barrage of attacks come out against Bill Gates, for instance, and many, many others. Where's Bill Gates gone, by the way? You know, he was in the media, oh, we got to do this, we got to do that. Well, maybe he's licking his wounds somewhere because he got the heck beat out of him, you know, on social media and elsewhere. And, and more and more people are waking up and going, hey, wait a second, maybe Bill Gates isn't a hero. Maybe he's killing those kids in the other countries by feeding them GMOs. Because oh, I, I, we've got to be careful now because um, I've recently had some trouble with YouTube. 
So let, let me just ask you the next question. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, what, I, I, I get it. I get what, it. What are your plans for the future? Um, my plans for the future are to be open to, to inspiration. And, and by the, me, the real meaning of that word, if, if you look at the prefix in, in the Latin, it means to be. So inspiration, inspiritus, is to be spirit, is to be with, filled with spirit. And, and I, you know, I used, I've always been very driven, Sean. And, and I've always had specific goals. And I've gone after them and I've achieved them. I was visualizing myself on Oprah literally for decades before I was on Oprah and it happened. So, you know, there's something to that, but there's also a rigidity to that. And, and there's a disconnect from call it flow or call it openness. And so for me, you know, this is the comeback and it's, we've, I've been working on the comeback for seven years since 2013 where I came out of prison, I was $20 million in debt, and I was homeless, and I was alone, and I was in horrible physical condition. Well, now, fast forward, I'm married to the most amazing woman on the planet, and and we're living in a nice, I was homeless, now we're living in a nice, comfortable home here in Henderson. It's not outlandish, we don't need outlandish, and I'm talking to you, and I'm doing what I love, so so people always say, is this the comeback, you know, and they think the comeback has to be $10 million a year, and and all the media. Well, no, you know, the comeback is a process. And so I'm just open to the process and I'm living purpose of life is to live every day and I'm being grateful and staying open to what's next. It sounds like you've learned a lot of lessons from everything you've been through. And I really appreciate your time today in the description box below this video. We're going to have your links for people to check out. So we'll put in your, the link to your new book um which platforms do you prefer people to get a hold of you on if they want to message you well the very best is my website which is jamesray.com um i'm on all the rest of them but um quite frankly i don't answer pms as a rule on instagram or facebook because i i need more hours in a day to answer those than I have. So the best way to contact me is to go to the contact us page on jamesray.com. But certainly I'm very active on Instagram and, and, and please forgive me and YouTube. Please forgive me because I, I get the whole shit thing. Cause I've, I've been censored many times recently too. And I, you know, I apologize for that. Feel free to edit that out if you can. And, and that's that I'm totally cool with that. Um, because, um, you know, we've got to be able to get a message out and going back to what I said about Don Jose Luis, you, you play, you, you have to play the game to some degree. You just don't buy in. And to the degree you play the game, um, smart and do what you need to do to attempt to shift the center, if you will, then it appears to me that's what you're, you're all about. And, and I honor that and, you know, really respect the fact that you're about what you're about. Well, thank you very much for your time, James. And like I said, there's people watching this um, in the description box below uh, links to James's stuff. So I urge people to go down there and check it out. All right. And let us know in the comments what you thought of this video. So cheers from London. Thank you.